The parable of the prodigal son is a parable of us all. It reminds us that we are, in some measure, prodigal sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. For, as the Apostle Paul wrote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Like the errant son of the Savior's parable, we have come to a far country, separated from our premortal home. Like the prodigal, we share in a divine inheritance, but by our sins we squander a portion thereof and experience a mighty famine of spirit. Like him, we learn through painful experience that worldly pleasures and pursuits are of no more worth than the husks of corn that swine eat. We yearn to be reconciled with our Father and return to his home. Yea, how long we have wandered as strangers in sin and cried in the desert for thee. In the parable of the prodigal son, only the eldest son remains true to his father. In his own words, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Similarly, in the plan of salvation, the firstborn of the father is sinless and without spot. Yet there is a vital difference. In the parable, the eldest son is jealous of the attention paid to the returning prodigal. In the plan of salvation, however, the eldest son makes possible the return of the prodigals. The father sends him forth to redeem his sons and daughters from bondage. The eldest son is filled with compassion. I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. He journeys a long distance to find and bring home the prodigal ones. And there he finds us, weary, hungry, and downtrodden. He feeds us and gives us drink. He lives among us and shares our burdens. Then, in a final act of supreme love, the eldest son takes of his own fortune, and one by one he ransoms us. In order to pay the fullness of our debt, he is compelled to sacrifice his own wealth, yea, all that he has, every whit. There are those who refuse the proffered ransom. Chained by pride, they prefer bondage to repentance. But those who accept of his offering and forsake their errant ways receive healing at his hands and liberty as his gift. These he leads back to the Father with songs of everlasting joy. I testify that the eldest son of our Father in heaven did redeem us from the bondage of sin. We are a purchased people. In the words of Paul, ye are bought with a price. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the firstborn of the Father descended below all things. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. At Golgotha, at the hands of men for whose very sins he had atoned, he poured out his soul unto death, freely relinquishing his life as he overcame the world. In the premortal realm, he had been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the earth, the great I Am. From these exalted heights he descended, coming to earth in the most humble of circumstances, that he might be no stranger to our sorrows. Instead of worldly station, he chose to be born in a lowly stable and live the simple life of a carpenter. 
He grew up in an obscure village in a despised precinct of Palestine. He made himself of no reputation and was a root out of a dry ground, having no beauty that we should desire him. He might have had political power and honor. He chose instead to be a healer and a teacher. He might have won the favor of his people by freeing them from Roman oppression. Instead, he saved them from their sins and was rejected by his own. He sacrificed the glory of Galilee to experience the humiliation and trial of Jerusalem. Then, in the most literal way, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the utmost demands of our ransom as he bore the pain of all men. And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. A few years ago, I visited Jerusalem shortly before Christmas. The streets were cold and dreary. There was political tension in the air. Yet peace filled my heart to know that this was the city he loved so much, the very place of his eternal sacrifice, to know that here had lived he who was the Savior of all mankind. I returned to the United States late on a Saturday evening. When the Sabbath dawned, my alarm awoke me to these words from O Holy Night. The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be a friend. And I began to weep as I contemplated the perfect life and glorious sacrifice of the Redeemer of Israel, he who was born the friend of the lowly and hope of the meek. I bear testimony that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price of our sins upon condition of repentance. He is the firstborn of the Father. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the firstfruits of the resurrection. I testify that he lives. I testify that he is in very deed our only delight, our King, our Deliverer, our All. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Last summer, I attended the funeral of an elect lady. One speaker described three of her great qualities, loyalty, obedience, and faith. As he elaborated on her life in relation to these qualities, I thought how appropriate it was to speak of such powerful qualities in a funeral tribute. A life is not a trivial thing, and its passing should not be memorialized with trivial things. A funeral service is a time to speak of powerful ideas, ideas that can appropriately stand beside the importance of life, ideas that are powerful in their influence on those who remain behind. As I enjoyed the spirit of this inspiring funeral, my thoughts were directed toward the application of this principle in other settings. Parents should also teach powerful ideas. So should home teachers, visiting teachers, and the teachers in various classes. 
The Savior warned that we will be judged for every idle word that we shall speak. Modern revelation commands us to cease from light speeches and light-mindedness and to cast away idle thoughts and excess of laughter. There are plenty of other spokesmen for trivial things. Latter-day Saints should be constantly concerned with teaching and emphasizing those great and powerful eternal truths that will help us find our way back to the presence of our Heavenly Father. About 30 years ago, some scholars authored a book on general education, the body of knowledge expected of all educated persons. Its title, The Knowledge Most Worth Having, is a good reminder of the fact that knowledge is not of equal value. Some knowledge is more important than others. That principle also applies to what we call spiritual knowledge. Consider the power of the idea taught in our beloved song, I Am a Child of God, sung so impressively by the choir at the beginning of this session. Here is the answer to one of life's great questions, Who am I? I am a child of God with a spirit lineage to heavenly parents. That parentage defines our eternal potential. That powerful idea is a potent antidepressant. It can strengthen each of us to make righteous choices and to seek the best that is within us. Establish in the mind of a young person the powerful idea that he or she is a child of God and you have given self-respect and motivation to move against the problems of life. <clears throat> when we understand our relationship to God, we also understand our relationship to one another. All men and women on this earth are the offspring of God, spirit, brothers, and sisters. What a powerful idea! No wonder God's only begotten Son commanded us to love one another. If only we could do so! What a different world it would be if brotherly and sisterly love and unselfish assistance could transcend all boundaries of nation, creed, and color. Such love would not erase all differences of opinion and action, but it would encourage each of us to focus our opposition on actions rather than actors. The eternal truth that our Heavenly Father loves all His children is an immensely powerful idea. It is especially powerful when children can visualize it through the love and sacrifice of their earthly parents. Love is the most powerful influence in the world. Arthur Henry King has said, Love is not just an ecstasy, not just an intense feeling. It is a driving force. It is something that carries us through our life of joyful duty. We all have our own examples of the power of love. More than 25 years ago, I recorded some memories I had of my father, who died before I was eight years old. What I wrote then illustrates the power of love in the life of a boy. 
Quote, The strongest impression I have of my relationship with my father I cannot document with any event or any words I can recall. It is a feeling based on words and actions long since lost to mind this feeling persists with all the clarity of perfect faith he loved me and he was proud of me that is the kind of memory a boy can treasure and also a man end of quote another powerful idea we should teach one another is that mortal life has a purpose and that mortal death is not the end but only a transition to the next phase of an existence that is immortal. President Brigham Young taught that our existence here is for the sole purpose of exaltation and restoration to the presence of our Father and God. The idea of eternal progress is one of the most powerful ideas in our theology. It gives us hope when we falter and challenge when we soar. Surely this is one of the great solemnities of eternity that we are commanded to let rest upon our minds. Another idea that is powerful to lift us from discouragement is that the work of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to bring to pass the eternal life of man is an eternal work. Not all problems are overcome and not all needed relationships are fixed in mortality. The work of salvation goes on beyond the veil of death and we should not be too apprehensive about incompleteness within the limits of mortality. A powerful idea with immediate practical application is the reality that we can pray to our Heavenly Father and He will hear our prayers and help us in the way that is best for us. Most of us have experienced the horrible empty feeling that comes from being separated from those who love us. If we remember that we can pray and be heard and helped, we can always withstand that feeling of emptiness. We can always be in touch with a powerful friend who loves us and helps us in his own time and in his own way. Thousands of experiences show that we can pray and have our prayers answered. Some of the choicest involve young children. In the biography of President Spencer W. Kimball, we read, quote, Again and again, Spencer watched his parents take their problems to the Lord. One day, when Spencer was five and out doing his chores, little one-year-old Fanny wandered from the house and was lost. No one could find her. Claire, 16, said, Ma, if we pray, the Lord will direct us to Fanny. So the mother and children prayed. Immediately after the prayer, Gordon walked to the very spot where Fanny was fast asleep in a large box behind the chicken coop. We thanked our Heavenly Father over and over, Olive recorded in her journal. End of quote. Every follower of Jesus Christ knows that the most powerful ideas of the Christian faith are the resurrection and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Because of Him, we can be forgiven of our sins 
and we will live again. Those powerful ideas have been explained in countless sermons from this pulpit and a million others. They are well known, but not well applied in the lives of most of us. Our model is not the latest popular hero of sports or entertainment, not our accumulated power or prestige, and not the expensive toys and diversions that encourage us to concentrate on what is temporary and forget what is eternal. Our model, our first priority, is Jesus Christ. We must testify of Him and teach one another how we can apply His teachings and His example in our lives. <clears throat> Brigham Young gave us some practical advice on how to do this. The difference between God and the devil, he said, is that God creates and organizes while the whole study of the devil is to destroy. In that contrast, we have an important example of the reality of opposition in all things. Remember, our Savior, Jesus Christ, always builds us up and never tears us down. We should apply the power of that example in the ways we use our time, including our recreation and diversions. Consider the themes of the books, magazines, movies, television, and music we make popular by our patronage. Do the purposes and actions portrayed in our chosen entertainment build up or tear down the children of God? During my lifetime, I have seen a strong trend to displace what builds up and dignifies the children of God with portrayals and performances that are depressing, demeaning, and destructive. The powerful idea in this example is that whatever builds people up serves the cause of the master, and whatever tears people down serves the cause of the adversary. We support one cause or the other every day by our patronage. This should remind us of our responsibility and motivate us toward fulfilling it in a way that would be pleasing to him whose suffering offers us hope and whose example should give us direction. <coughs> we should always put the Savior first. The first commandment Jehovah gave to the children of Israel was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This seems like a simple idea, but in practice many find it difficult. It is surprisingly easy to take what should be our first devotion and subordinate it to other priorities. Fifty years ago, the Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis illustrated that tendency with an example that is distressingly applicable in our own day. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, a senior devil explains how to corrupt Christians and frustrate the work of Jesus Christ. One letter explains how any extreme devotion can lead Christians away from the Lord and the practice of Christianity. Lewis gives two examples—extreme patriotism or extreme pacifism—and explains how either extreme devotion can corrupt its adherent. Quote, 
Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Once you've made the world an end and faith a means, you've almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing." End of quote. We can readily see that tendency in our own time with many causes that are good in themselves but become spiritually corrupting when they assume priorities ahead of him who commanded, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus Christ and his work come first. Anything that would use him or his kingdom or his church as a means to an end serves the cause of the adversary. <coughs> Two other powerful ideas were given voice by a noble young woman who survived a terrible experience. Virginia Reed was a survivor of the tragic Donner Reed Party, who made one of the earliest wagon treks into California. If this wagon train had followed the established Oregon Trail northwest from Fort Bridger, Wyoming to Fort Hall, Idaho, and then southwest toward California, they would have reached their destination in safety. Instead, they were misled by a promoter. Lansford W. Hastings persuaded them they could save significant distance and time by following his so-called Hastings Cutoff. The Donner Reed Party left the proven trail at Fort Bridger and struggled southwest. They blazed a trail through the rugged Wasatch Mountains and then south of the Great Salt Lake and westward over the soggy surface of the salt flats in furnace heat. The delays and incredible energies expended on this unproven route cost the Donner Reed Party an extra month in reaching the Sierra Nevada mountains. As they hastened up the eastern slope, trying to beat the first snows, they were caught in a tragic winter storm only one day short of the summit and a downhill passage into California. Marooned for the winter, half their group perished from starvation and cold. After months in the mountains and incredible hardships of hunger and terror, 13-year-old Virginia Reed reached California and sent a letter to her cousin in the Midwest. After recounting her experiences and the terrible sufferings of their party, she concluded with this wise advice, quote, Never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. End of quote. That is powerful and true advice, especially for teenagers. Young people are surrounded by many beckoning paths and many persuasive promoters who offer advice and cutoffs as substitutes for the proven way. Try out this detour 
or tarry here for a while are familiar proposals on the journey of life. My young friends, remember Virginia Reed's advice, never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. I conclude with an example from the life of the Apostle Paul. During his ministry, he was exposed to ample light-mindedness, idle thoughts, and trivial things. In Athens, he observed that all the Athenians and strangers which were there in the market spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. Paul's determination to focus on powerful ideas is evident in one of his letters to the saints in Corinth. He had not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, he reminded them, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let us follow the commandments of God and the examples of His servants. Let us focus our teachings on those great and powerful ideas that have eternal significance in promoting righteousness, building up the children of God, and helping each of us toward our destiny of eternal life. That we may do so is my fervent prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Whenever Church members speak of consecration, it should be done reverently while acknowledging that each of us comes short of the glory of God, some of us far short. Even the conscientious have not arrived, but they sense the shortfall and are genuinely striving. Consolingly, God's grace flows not only to those who love Him and keep all His commandments, but likewise to those that seek so to do. A second group of members are honorable but not valiant. They are not really aware of the gap nor of the importance of closing it. These honorable individuals are neither miserable nor wicked. It is not what they have done but what they have left undone that is amiss. For example, if valiant, they could touch others deeply instead of merely being remembered pleasantly. In a third group are those who are grossly entangled with the ungodliness of the world, reminding us all, as Peter wrote, that if we are overcome by something worldly, we are brought in bondage. If one minds the things of the flesh, he cannot have the mind of Christ, because his thought patterns are far from Jesus, as are the desires or the intents of his heart. Ironically, if the Master is a stranger to us, then we will merely end up serving other Masters. The sovereignty of these other Masters is real, even if it sometimes is subtle, for they do call their cadence. Actually, we are all enlisted, if only in the ranks of the indifferent. To the extent that we are not willing to be led by the Lord, we will be driven by our appetites or we will be more preoccupied with the lesser things of the day. The remedy is implicit in the marvelous lamentation of King Benjamin. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? 
For many moderns, sad to say, the query, What think ye of Christ? is answered, I really don't think of him at all. Consider three examples of how honorable people in a Church keep back a portion and thus prevent greater consecration. A sister gives commendable, visible civic service and deserves her good image in the community. Yet she remains a comparative stranger to Jesus' holy temples and His holy scriptures, two vital dimensions of discipleship. But she could yet have Christ's image in her countenance. An honorable father, dutifully involved in the cares of his family, is less than kind and gentle with individual family members. Though a comparative stranger to Jesus' gentleness and kindness, which we are instructed to emulate, a little more effort by this father would make such a large difference. Consider the returned missionary, skills polished while serving an honorable mission, striving earnestly for success in his career. Busy, he ends up in a posture of some accommodation with the world. Thus he forgoes building up the kingdom first and instead builds up himself. A small course correction now would make a large, even destinational difference for him later on. These deficiencies just illustrated are those of omission. Once the celestial sins are left behind and henceforth avoided, the focus falls evermore upon the sins of omission. These omissions signify a lack of qualifying for the celestial kingdom. Only greater consecration can correct these omissions, which have consequences as real as the sins of commission. Many of us thus have sufficient faith to avoid the major sins of commission, but not enough faith to sacrifice our distracting obsessions and to focus on our omissions. Most omissions occur because we fail to get outside ourselves. We are so busy checking on our own temperatures, we do not notice the burning fevers of others, even when we can offer them some of the remedies, such as encouragement, kindness, and commendation. The hands which hang down and most need to be lifted up belong to those too discouraged even to reach out anymore. Actually, everything depends on our desires, which shape our thought patterns. Our desires precede our deeds and lie at the very cores of our souls, tilting us toward or away from God. God can educate our desires. Others may seek to manipulate our desires. But it is we who form the desires, the thoughts, and intents of our heart. The end rule is, According as our desire shall it be done. For I, the Lord, judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their heart. One's individual will thus remains uniquely his. God will not override it nor overwhelm it. Hence, we'd better want the consequences of what we want. Another cosmic fact. Only by aligning our wills with God's is full happiness to be found. Anything less results in a lesser portion. 
The Lord will work with us even if at first we can do no more than desire, but are willing to give place for a portion of His words. A small foothold is all He needs, but we must provide it. So many of us are kept from eventual consecration because we mistakenly think that somehow, by letting our will be swallowed up in the will of God, we lose our individuality. What we are really worried about, of course, is not giving up self, but selfish things, like our roles, our time, our preeminence, and our possessions. No wonder we are instructed by the Savior to lose ourselves. He is only asking us to lose the old self in order to find the new self. It is not a question of one's losing identity, but of finding his true identity. Ironically, so many people already lose themselves anyway in their hobbies and preoccupations, but with far, far lesser things. Ever observant in both the first and second estates, consecrated Jesus always knew in which direction he faced. He consistently emulated his Father, saying the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. As one's will is increasingly submissive to the will of God, he can receive inspiration and revelation to help meet the trials of life. In the trying and very defining Isaac episode, Abraham staggered not through unbelief. Of that episode, John Taylor observed that nothing but the spirit of revelation could have given Abraham this confidence and sustained him under those peculiar circumstances. Will we, too, trust the Lord amid a perplexing trial for which we have no easy explanation? Do we understand, really understand, that Jesus knows when we are stressed and perplexed? The complete consecration which affected the Atonement ensured Jesus' perfect empathy. He felt our very pains before we did and knows how to succor us. Since the most innocent suffered the most, our cry of why cannot match his. But we can utter the same submissive word nevertheless. Progression toward submission confers another blessing, an enhanced capacity for joy. Counsel President Brigham Young, if you want to enjoy exquisitely, become a Latter-day Saint. Then live the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Thus, brothers and sisters, consecration is not resignation or a mindless caving in. Rather, it is a deliberate expanding outward, making us more honest when we sing, More used would I be. Consecration, likewise, is not shoulder-shrugging acceptance, but instead shoulder-squaring to better bear the yoke. Consecration involves pressing forward with a steadfastness in Christ, with a brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men, while feasting on the word of Christ. 
Jesus pressed forward sublimely. He did not shrink, such as by going only 60% of the distance towards the full atonement. He finished his preparations for all mankind, thus bringing a universal resurrection, not one in which 40% of us would be left out. Each of us might well ask, in what ways am I shrinking or holding back? Meek introspection may yield some bold insights. For example, what have we already willingly discarded along the pathway of discipleship? It is the only pathway where littering is permissible, even encouraged. In the early stages, the debris left behind includes the grosser sins of commission. Later debris differs. Things begin to be discarded which have caused the misuse or underuse of our time and talent. Along the pathway leading to consecration, stern and unsought challenges sometimes hasten this jettisoning which is needed to achieve increased consecration. If we have grown soft, hard times may be necessary. If we are too contented, a dose of divine discontent may come. A relevant insight may be contained in reproof. A new calling beckons us away from comfortable routines wherein the needed competencies have already been developed. One may be stripped of a custom luxury so that the malignant mold of materialism may be removed. One may be scorched by humiliation so pride can be melted away. Whatever we lack will get attention one way or another. John Taylor indicated that the Lord may even choose to wrench our very heartstrings. If our hearts are set too much upon the things of this world, they may need to be wrenched or broken or undergo a mighty change. Consecration is thus both a principle and a process, and it is not tied to a single moment. Instead, it is freely given drop by drop until the cup of consecration brims and finally runs over. Long before that, however, as Jesus declared, we must settle this in our hearts that we will do what he asks of us. President Young further counseled to submit to the hand of the Lord and acknowledge his hand in all things then you will be exactly right. And until you come to that point, you cannot be entirely right. That is what we have to come to. Thus, acknowledging God's hand includes, in the words of the Prophet Joseph, trusting that God has made ample provision beforehand to achieve all His purposes, including in our lives. Sometimes it seems He clearly directs Other times it seems he merely permits. Therefore, we will not always understand the role of God's hand, but we know enough of his heart and mind to be submissive. When we are perplexed and stressed, explanatory help is not always immediately forthcoming, but compensatory help will be. Thus, our process of cognition gives away to our personal submission as we experience those moments when we learn to be still 
and know that I am God. Then, the more one's will is thus swallowed up, the more his afflictions will be swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Seventy years ago, Lord Moulton coined a perceptive phrase, obedience to the unenforceable, describing the obedience of a man to that which he cannot be forced to obey. God's blessings, including those associated with consecration, come by unforced obedience to the laws upon which they are predicated. Thus, our deepest desires determine our degree of obedience to the unenforceable. God seeks to have us become more consecrated by giving everything. Then, when we come home to Him, He will generously give us all that He hath. In conclusion, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things He has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to Him. It is the only possession which is truly ours to give. Consecration thus constitutes the only unconditional surrender which is also a total victory. May we deeply desire that victory. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In April of 1847, Brigham Young led the first company of the pioneers out of winter quarters. At the same time, 1,600 miles to the west, the pathetic survivors of the Donner Party straggled down the slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains into the Sacramento Valley. They had spent the ferocious winter trapped in the snowdrifts below the summit. That any survived the days and weeks and months of starvation, of indescribable suffering, is almost beyond belief. Among them was 15-year-old John Breen. On the night of April the 24th, he walked into Johnson's ranch. Years later, John wrote, <clears throat> It was long after dark when we got to Johnson's ranch, so the first time I saw it was in the morning. The weather was fine. The ground was covered with green grass. The birds were singing from the treetops, and the journey was over. I could scarcely believe that I was alive. The scene that I saw that morning seems to be photographed on my mind. Most of the incidents are gone from memory, but I can always see the camp near Johnson's Ranch. At first, I was puzzled by his statement, most of the incidents are gone from memory. How could long months of incredible suffering and sorrow ever be gone from his mind? How could that dark winter be replaced with one brilliant morning? 
On further reflection, I decided it was not puzzling at all. I have seen something similar happen to people I have known. I have seen one who has spent a long winter of guilt and spiritual starvation emerge into the morning of forgiveness. When morning came, they learned this. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquity will I remember no more. When the prophet Alma was young, he spent such a time, racked, as he said, with eternal torment, his soul harrowed up to the greatest degree. He even thought, Oh, that I could be banished and become extinct, both body and soul. But his mind caught hold of a thought. When he nurtured the thought and acted upon it, the morning of forgiveness came, and he said, I could remember my pains no more, yea, I was harrowed up in the memory of my sins no more, and oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Letters come from those who have made tragic mistakes. They ask, Can I ever be forgiven? The answer is yes. The gospel teaches us that relief from torment and guilt can be earned through repentance. Save for those few who defect to perdition after having known a fullness, there is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is, Isaiah continued, if ye be willing and obedient. Even that grace of God promised in the scriptures comes only after all we can do. You may tell yourself that your transgressions are not spiritually illegal. That will not work. Neither will rebellion, nor anger, nor joking about them. You cannot do that, and you don't have to do it. There is a way back. It will not help if, out of tender regard for your feelings, I avoid telling you about the hard part. John Breen did not come to that morning at Johnson's Ranch simply by desiring it. He wallowed and clawed his way up over the pass, suffering every step of the way. But once he knew he would survive, 
and the suffering would end. Surely he did not complain at the ordeal. And he had help all the way down. He was with rescuers. When an offense is minor, so simple a thing as an apology will satisfy the law. Most mistakes can be settled between us and the Lord and should be done speedily. It requires a confession to him and whatever obvious repairs need to be made. With sincere repentance as a pattern in our lives, measured by our willingness to confess and forsake them, the Lord has promised that he, we may always retain a remission of our sins. Alma bluntly told his wayward son that repentance could not come unto man except there be a punishment. The punishment may, for the most part, consist of the torment we inflict upon ourselves. It may be the loss of privilege or progress. We're punished for, by our sins, if not for them. There are some transgressions which require a discipline which will bring about the relief that comes in the morning of forgiveness. If your mistakes have been grievous ones, go to your bishop. Like the rescuers who brought John Breen down from the mountaintops, bishops can guide you through the steps required to obtain forgiveness insofar as the Church is concerned. <clears throat> Each one of us must work out individually forgiveness from the Lord. To earn forgiveness, one must make restitution. That means you give back what you have taken or ease the pain of those you have injured. But sometimes you cannot give back what you have taken because you don't have it to give. If you have caused others to suffer unbearably, defile someone's virtue, for example, it is not within your power to give it back. There are times when you cannot mend that which you have broken. Perhaps the offense was long ago or the injured refused your penance. Perhaps the damage was so severe that you cannot fix it, no matter how desperately you want to. Your repentance cannot be accepted unless there is a restitution. If you cannot undo what you have done, you're trapped. It's easy to understand how helpless and hopeless you then feel and why you must want to give up, just as Alma did. The thought that rescued Alma when he acted upon it was this. Restoring what you cannot restore, healing the wound you cannot heal, fixing that which you broke and you cannot fix is the very purpose of the Atonement of Christ. When your desire is firm and you're willing to pay, you're willing to pay the uttermost farthing, the law of restitution is suspended. Your obligation is transferred to the Lord. He will settle your accounts. I repeat, save for the exception of the very few who defect to perdition, there is no habit no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no apostasy, no crime, exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. That 
is the promise of the Atonement of Christ. How all can be repaired, we do not know. It may not all be accomplished in this life. We know from visions and visitations that the servants of the Lord continue the work of redemption beyond the veil. This knowledge should be as comforting to the innocent as it is to the guilty. I'm thinking of parents who suffer unbearably for mistakes of their wayward children and are losing hope. Some members wonder why their priesthood leaders will not accept them just as they are and simply comfort them in what they call pure Christian love. Pure Christian love, the love of Christ, does not presuppose approval of unworthy conduct. Surely the ordinary experiences of parenthood teach that one can be consumed with love for another and yet unable to approve unworthy conduct. We cannot, as a Church, approve unworthy conduct or accept into full fellowship individuals who live or teach standards that are grossly in violation of that which the Lord requires of Latter-day Saints. If we, out of sympathy, should approve unworthy conduct, it might give present comfort to someone but would not ultimately contribute to their happiness. In the most tender of sermons in the Revelation on kindness and long-suffering, on meekness, gentleness, on love and faith, the Lord instructs us to reprove betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and then show forth an increase of love toward him whom thou hast approved. The Lord provides a way to pay our debts. In one sense, we ourselves may participate in an atonement when we are willing to restore to others that which we have not taken or heal wounds that we did not inflict or pay a debt that we did not incur, we are emulating his part in the atonement. So many live with accusing guilt when relief is ever at hand. So many are like the immigrant woman who skimped and saved and deprived herself until, by selling all of her possessions, she bought a steerage-class ticket to America. She rationed out the meager provisions she was able to bring with her. Even so, they were gone early in the voyage. When others went for their meals, she stayed below deck, determined to suffer it through. Finally, on the last day, She must, she thought, afford one meal to give her strength for the journey yet ahead. When she asked what the meal would cost, she was told that all of the meals had been included in the price of her ticket. That great morning of forgiveness may not come at once. Do not give up if at first you fail. Often the most difficult part of repentance is to forgive yourself. Discouragement is part of that test. Do not give up. That brilliant morning will come. Then the peace of God, which surpasseth understanding, comes into your life once again. Then you, like him, will remember your sins no more. How will you know? 
you will know. Some years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with President Harold B. Lee. Early one morning, he called me to come into his hotel room. He was sitting in a robe, reading Gospel Doctrine by President Joseph F. Smith. And he said, listen to this. Jesus had not finished his work when his body was slain. Neither did he finish it after the resurrection from the dead. Although he had accomplished the purpose for which he came to the earth, he had not fulfilled all his work. And when will he? Not until he has redeemed and saved every son and daughter of our father Adam that have been or ever will be born upon this earth to the end of time save for the sons of perdition. That is his mission. We will not finish our work until we have saved ourselves, and then on until we shall have saved all depending upon us. For we are to become saviors on Mount Zion as well as Christ. We are called to this mission. There never was a time, the prophet Joseph Smith taught, when the Spirit is too old to approach God. All are within the reach of pardoning mercy who have not committed the unpardonable sin. And so we pray and we fast and we plead and we implore. We love those who wander and we never give up hope. I bear witness of Christ and of the power of his atonement And I know that his anger is kindleth against the wicked. They repent, and in a moment it is turned away, and they are in his favor, and he giveth them life. Therefore, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It is so hard when sincere prayer about something we desire very much is not answered the way we want. It is especially difficult when the Lord answers no to that which is worthy and would give us great joy and happiness. Whether it be overcoming illness or loneliness, the recovery of a wayward child coping with a handicap, or seeking continuing life for a dear one who is slipping away, it seems so reasonable and so consistent with our happiness to have a favorable answer. It is hard to understand why our exercise of deep and sincere faith from an obedient life does not bring the desired result. No one wants adversity. Trials, disappointments, sadness, and heartache come to us from two basically different sources. Those who transgress the laws of God will always have those challenges. The other reason for adversity is to accomplish the Lord's own purposes in our life, that we may receive the refinement that comes from testing 
It is vitally important for each of us to identify from which of these two sources come our trials and challenges, for the corrective action is very different. If you are suffering the disheartening effects of transgression, please recognize that the only path to permanent relief from sadness is sincere repentance with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Realize your full dependence upon the Lord and your need to align your life with His teachings. There is really no other way to have lasting healing and peace. Postponing humble repentance will delay or prevent your receiving relief. Admit to yourself your mistakes and seek help now. Your bishop is a friend with keys of authority to help you find peace of mind and contentment. The way will be opened for you to have the strength to repent, and you'll be forgiven. Now may I share some suggestions with you who face the second source of adversity, the testing that a wise Heavenly Father determines is needed even when you are living a worthy, righteous life and are obedient to His commandments. Just when all seems to be going right, challenges often come in multiple doses simultaneously applied. When those trials are not consequences of your own disobedience, they are evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. Therefore, He gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion which polish you for your everlasting benefit. To get you from where you are to where He wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain. When you face adversity, you can be led to ask many questions. Some serve a useful purpose, others do not. To ask, why does this have to happen to me? Why do I have to suffer this now? What have I done to cause this? will lead you into blind alleys. It really does no good to ask questions that reflect opposition to the will of God. Rather ask, what am I to do? What am I to learn from this experience? What am I to change? Who am I to help? How can I remember my many blessings in times of trial? Willing sacrifice of deeply held personal desires in favor of the will of God is very hard to do. Yet, when you pray with real conviction, please let me know thy will, and may thy will be done. You are in the strongest position to receive the maximum help from your loving Father. This life is an experience in profound trust. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in His teachings. Trust in our capacity as led by the Holy Spirit to obey those teachings for happiness now and for a purposeful, supremely happy eternal existence. To trust means to obey willingly without knowing the end from the beginning. To produce fruit, your trust in the Lord must be more powerful and enduring than your confidence in your own personal feelings and experience. To exercise faith 
is to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing with you and that he can accomplish it for your eternal good, even though you cannot understand how he can possibly do it. We are like infants in our understandings of eternal matters that affect us here in mortality. Yet at times we act as if we knew it all. When you pass through trials for his purposes, as you trust in him and exercise faith in him, he will help you. That support will generally come step by step, a portion at a time. While you're passing through each phase, the pain and the difficulty that comes from being enlarged will continue. If all matters were immediately resolved at your first petition, you could not grow. Your Father in heaven and his beloved Son love you perfectly. They would not require you to experience a moment more of difficulty than is absolutely needed for your personal benefit or for that of those you love. As in all things, the Masters are a perfect example. Who could have asked with more perfect faith, greater obedience, more complete understanding than did he when he asked his father in Gethsemane? Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Later, he pled twice again, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except that I drink of it, thy will be done. How grateful I am personally that our Savior taught that we should conclude our most urgent, deeply felt prayers when we ask for that which is utmost importance to us with thy will be done. Your willingness to accept the will of the Father will not change what in his wisdom he has chosen to do. However, it will certainly change the effect of those decisions on you personally. That evidence of the proper exercise of agency allows his decisions to produce far greater blessings in your life. I have found that because of our Father's desire for us to grow, he may give us gentle, almost imperceptible promptings that, if we are willing to accept without complaint, he will enlarge to become a very clear indication of his will. This enlightenment comes because of our faith and our willingness to do what he asks, even though we would desire something else. Our Father in heaven has invited you to express your needs, hopes, and desires unto him. That should not be done in the spirit of negotiation, rather as a willingness to obey his will, no matter what direction it takes. His invitation, ask and ye shall receive, does not assure that you'll get what you want. It does guarantee, if worthy that you will get what you need as judged by a Father that loves you perfectly, who wants your eternal happiness even more than do you. I testify that when the Lord closes one important door in your life, He shows His continuing love and compassion by opening 
many compensating doors. He will place in your path packets of spiritual sunlight to brighten your way. They often come after the trial has been the greatest as evidence of the compassion and love of an all-knowing Father. They point the way to greater happiness, more understanding, and strengthen your determination to accept and be obedient to His will. It is a singular marvelous blessing to have faith in the Savior and a testimony of His teachings. So few in the world have that brilliant light to guide them. The fullness of the restored gospel gives perspective, purpose, and understanding. It allows us to face what otherwise appear to be unjust, unfair, unreasonable challenges in life. True, enduring happiness with the accompanying strength, courage, and capacity to overcome the most challenging difficulties come from a life centered in Jesus Christ. Obedience to His teachings provides a sure foundation upon which to build. That takes effort. There is no guarantee of overnight results, but there is absolute assurance that in the Lord's time, Solutions will come. Peace will prevail, and emptiness will be filled. Recently, a great leader suffering from physical handicaps that come with advancing age said, I'm glad I have what I have. It is wisdom to open the windows of happiness by recognizing your abundant blessings. Don't let the workings of adversity totally absorb your life. Try to understand what you can. Act where you are able. Then let the matter rest with the Lord for a period while you give to others in worthy ways before you take on appropriate concern again. Please learn that as you wrestle with a challenge and feel sadness because of it, that you can simultaneously have peace and rejoicing Yes, pain, disappointment, frustration, and anguish can be temporary scenes played out on the stage of life. Behind them, there can be a background of peace and a positive assurance that a loving Father will keep His promises. If you, you can qualify for those promises by a determination to accept His will, by understanding the plan of happiness by receiving all of the ordinances and by keeping the covenants made to assure their fulfillment. The Lord's plan is to exalt you, to live with Him, and to be greatly blessed. The rate at which you qualify is generally set by your capacity to mature and grow, to love, to give of yourself. He is preparing you to be a God. You cannot understand fully what that means, yet He knows. As you trust Him, seek and follow His will, you will receive blessings that your finite mind cannot understand here on earth. Your Father in Heaven and His Holy Son know better than you what brings happiness. They have given you the plan of happiness as you understand and follow it. Happiness will be your blessing. As you willingly obey, receive, and
and honor the ordinances and covenants of that holy plan, you can have the greatest measure of satisfaction in this life. Yes, even times of overpowering happiness, you'll prepare yourself for an eternity of glorious life with your loved ones who qualify for that kingdom. I know that the principles that we have discussed are true. They've been tested in the crucible of personal experience. To recognize the hand of the Lord in your life and to accept His will without complaint is a beginning. That decision does not immediately eliminate the struggles that will come from your growth, but I witness that it is the best way there is for you to find strength and understanding. It will allow your life to become productive, meaningful, when otherwise you may not know how to go on. I testify that you have a Heavenly Father that loves you. I witness that the Savior gave His life for your happiness. I know Him. He understands your every need. I positively know that as you accept their will without complaint, they will bless you and sustain you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.